Hello and welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary. And on this podcast, we focus on ministry and church leadership issues today, trying to discover insights and practical ways to do a better job at the task God has given us. Today, I'd like to talk about a very challenging issue for most of us, and that is managing conflict, particularly managing conflict in church ministry situations. And actually, this podcast is going to uh, be a two-part presentation. I'll start today with uh, some myths and some truths about conflict and spend some time looking at biblical resources that will be helpful. And then in the second part of this podcast, I'll be talking about some practical church-based strategies that leaders can put into place to manage conflict more effectively. But let's start today by considering uh, the issue of myths about church conflict. Now, when I started out as a younger pastor, I believed all of the myths I'm about to share with you. And when I discovered that some of them weren't true, I was quite frankly shocked because I had these built-in assumptions about how church was supposed to function, um, how people were supposed to respond to leadership, and really some unrealistic uh, perspectives on how uh, church decision-making was going to work. And so these myths plagued me, and I train a lot of young leaders and speak in a lot of places about these kinds of issues, and I find that these uh, myths are still prevalent today. So let me lay them out for you. First, myth number one is that churches are supposed to be one big happy family. Well, the reality is most families are not one big happy family. In fact, it's almost impossible to find a family that doesn't have some uh, interesting or even significant dysfunction going on within its uh, constellation of relationships. Families uh, are a good uh, relational model for what church can be like, but when you consider that church is supposed to be the family of God, think about what that means in terms of what your family is like and then uh, extrapolate or project that into a church context. And you'll see that, frankly, not very many families, if any, are one big happy family, and it's unrealistic to expect churches to be the same thing. Many church members often overemphasize this family motif or this family idea about the church for a couple of uh, misguided reasons. First, they do it out of nostalgia for a past that they imagine existed, but quite frankly, uh, never really did exist. I'm going to show you in just a few moments that even going all the way back to the New Testament, uh, churches have always had conflicts. And so when you imagine a better day in the past when churches were more unified, there were, there were less conflicts, there were less divisions, um, you just simply are imagining something that didn't exist. And so this misplaced nostalgia is one source of this myth. Another source of this myth is is compensation because of shortcomings in current family relationships. Quite honestly, when people are struggling in their families, they want to project that in, uh, and have their church compensate for those shortcomings in their own family by being the perfect family or the perfect set of family relationships. So whether it's nostalgia for a past that doesn't really exist or compensation, expecting the church to meet needs that are shortcomings in uh, in, in uh, normal families, 
Uh, neither of these reasons justify ex the expectation that churches are always going to be one big happy family. Uh, they're just not. And the sooner we come to grips with that reality, the more likely we'll be effectively able to deal with the conflict in congregations. So myth one, churches are supposed to be one big happy family. The second myth is that really good churches don't have conflict. Now, uh, we'll all admit, yeah, the bad churches have conflict, the struggling churches have conflict, the dying churches have conflict, but really good churches, they don't have conflict. Well, that's actually not true. Growing churches actually have inevitable conflict. When you are consistently reaching new people, adding them into your membership, incorporating them into your programs, when you're constantly having to shuffle classrooms, move people around in programming assignments, uh, start and stop things that are either no longer effective or have passed their usefulness date and new things have to be started to replace them, uh, when you're constantly having to raise money to expand buildings, to enlarge staff, to fund new programs or approaches, when you're doing all of these kinds of things plus dealing with the conflicts that come with community, uh, parking issues in your neighborhood, building permit issues with your uh, city or county planning boards. When you're dealing with all of the things that go along with growing churches, you are inevitably uh, going to have conflict. The, the healthiest, most rapidly growing, most transformational churches are also the ones who have the greatest potential for and have to have the greatest skill in managing conflict. Now, quite honestly, many church members haven't been taught the uh, basics of understanding how to manage church conflict or even how to anticipate church conflict. And so when their church starts growing uh, and the excitement starts building because of that, they're surprised when conflict erupts or conflict comes into the situation. So we'll talk more about that next week, but it's always important to remember that growing churches have to have a, a, an intentional strategy for teaching about conflict and for managing conflict because it's inevitable uh, that it's going to happen. Another myth about church conflict is that committed, mature believers don't have open conflict. You know, we like to think the best of pastors and deacons and elders, and we like to think the best of Sunday school teachers and uh, women who lead in various ministry programs in our churches. Uh, we like to think the best of church members and church leaders and think that the more mature they become, uh, the less conflict they will have. Well, while that may be true, the more mature they become does not eliminate the conflict they will have. Many, all believers still carry the taint of sin. All believers still struggle with imperfections and challenges and difficulties. Uh, all believers still struggle with relating to all the various kinds of people that come into their circle of influence. Every person has at least one person or a group of people or a kind of person that they have a very difficult time relating with or relating to. And so because of that, even the most mature believers still have conflict. And this can be very difficult for uh, rank-and-file church members particularly because they tend to idealize church leaders and say, well, we expect our pastors to function without conflict or our elders or deacons to work with our pastors uh, without conflict. We expect them to be models of, uh, of always having positive 
uplifting, uh, energizing relationships. And frankly, uh, that's just all untrue, and it's an unrealistic expectation. What you can expect of your church leaders is that they will model conflict management and conflict resolution well, but not that they will have an absence of conflict or just because of their maturity or even because of the position they've been given that they'll be able to avoid all conflict. So it is a realistic expectation that church leaders will manage it well, but not that they'll avoid it altogether. Another myth, number four, is that personnel decisions at church will not be divisive. Well, church members think that uh, we should be able to manage church employees without conflict. And that's simply an unrealistic expectation. One of the mistakes that church members often make and that church leaders still sometimes make is they view church employees as members first and employees second. Well, if your church does allow members to be employees, you need to understand that when a member becomes an employee, the priority of their relationship has shifted. They're now an employee first and a member second. This is uh, vital in so many ways, but it's particularly vital to understand because uh, church employees have legal rights that church members do not have. Uh, Church employees are still governed by many of the same employment laws that are effective at your work in a secular work setting. And many people don't want to think that way or don't naturally think that way about church employees. They don't realize that they need a detailed policy manual that outlines the personnel policies over which, under which employees will work. They need uh, personnel management systems in place so that employees are getting proper uh, periodic reviews and uh, compensation issues addressed, shortcomings corrected, uh, successes praised. They don't understand that... Uh, Uh, that church employees need many of the very same things that secular employees need in order to do their job effectively. And so when, when, when conflict arises among personnel in a church setting, people are often frustrated or shocked or even disgusted thinking that's not the way it should be. Well, it is the way it's going to be if you don't have really good systems in place to manage the personnel in your church. And you may say, yeah, but we're in a really small church and we're more like a family and everyone just gets along. No, you need to get past that way of thinking and understand that if a church has even one employee, that employee needs some policies to define their work relationships, tell them what to do about sick leave, what to do about vacation time, what to do about issues like workers' compensation. Uh, They need to understand uh, what their holidays are, what their work schedule is supposed to be, to whom they're accountable so they can have a clear understanding of when they're doing a good job and what correctives they need to make when their job's not being done well. And they also need the protection that all these things provide from uh, unscrupulous members or even outsiders who might attack them uh, and question their work ethic or question their productivity or, or even question the legitimacy of their position. And so no matter the size of the church, there, have to, there has to be an understanding that personnel decisions and personnel management will involve conflict. And the way to minimize that is to have a really good system of personnel management in place, even in a small church. Well, the fifth myth is that when a church, conf- when a church has conflict and it's resolved, everyone will be satisfied. The hard reality is that churches do have conflict and those conflicts can be resolved. But when they're resolved, that does not mean that everyone involved always leaves happy or always even continues in the church in a 
happy or satisfied way. You know, a few years ago, a veteran pastor pointed out pointed something out to me that's really uh, stuck with me over the years and really challenged my way of thinking about the issue of church membership for life. Here's what that pastor told me. He said, pastors and other ministry leaders are the only people who have permission to leave a church. And here's what he meant. He said, if your pastor stands up next Sunday and says, God is finished with me in this congregation, I no longer feel that my gifts are what are needed for this particular pastoral role, another church or mission board or denominational entity has asked me to come to work for them, and I believe that my skill set, my gift mix, uh, my passions and vision for ministry all fit that other organization better than our current church, and so I'm going to follow God's leading, and I'm going to that new location. Well, while there might be some initial uh, disappointment and even some emotional, a sense of emotional loss, most people fairly quickly will come to affirm the decision the leader has made and say things like, we thank God we had a leader who would follow God's will no matter what. Uh, we wish this person the best as they go off into new adventures and to finding and pursuing God in new ways. And we believe God will bring us a new pastor that will be better suited for our church and the challenges and needs we have going forward into the future. And we're going to press on toward that. These are the kinds of things that are typically said when a pastor or other ministry leader resigns and leaves a church. But suppose, just suppose, that the chairman of your deacons or the chairman of your elders or some other very prominent office holder that was a layperson in your church came forward on a Sunday and said the very same things. We no longer feel that we belong here. Uh, we feel our gifts could be used at another church, and so we're going to move our membership uh, down the street to another congregation or across town to another congregation, or we're going to leave and help plant a new church. What would be said after that presentation? Well, typically what would be said is something like this. Why are our leaders leaving our church? Why is our deacon leading, leaving? Why is our elder leaving? Why is there this division in our leadership that people are leaving our church? Are more people going to start leaving? Why are things breaking up like this? So this observation that pastors and ministry leaders are the only people who have the permission to leave a church really is true. Uh, when anyone in the lay membership announces that they're leaving for even the same reasons, the assumptions are that something is wrong, division is coming, there's behind-the-scenes bickering, or there's something that's happening that's going to cause people to no longer feel like they can be members of a certain church. So what I'd like to advocate is that everyone have the permission to leave a church. Uh, when their gifts are no longer in alignment with the church's needs, when their vision is no longer in alignment with the church's vision, when they just simply don't feel that they fit anymore or that God wants to use them anymore in that setting, they should have the freedom to move on. Now, if this were granted to every Christian, a lot of church conflict would go away because there would be a sense that while we're able to leave a church and go to another church, we can do that positively and proactively rather than having to stay and fester or foster conflict that's only going to be destructive in the long run. Well, these are some myths about church conflict. Churches are supposed to be one big happy family. Really good churches don't have conflict. Committed, mature believers don't have conflict. Personnel decisions uh, will not be divisive in church. And when church conflict does happen and it's resolved, 
everyone leaves satisfied. The reality is some people are not satisfied by staying in a conflict situation even when it's been resolved because they know that the underlying reasons are simply always going to be there and they need to move on to another ministry setting. Without giving permission to that to happen, you're dooming yourself to return to the conflict situations that have already happened. Now, having put those myths out, let's consider uh, some conflict situations in the Bible and what we can learn from them. Now, the New Testament actually has uh, quite a number of examples of church conflict, but I just want to mention three on the podcast today. The first one is an example of conflict between church members. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul wrote the Philippian church these words. He said, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Now, think about what happened here. These two women were involved in an open conflict. It was so bad that when Paul wrote his letter to the church, he called on other church leaders to help these women to get their conflict resolved. Now, quite honestly, uh, when I get to heaven, I want to ask these two women, was it worth it? (laughs) Was it worth it to be mentioned in the Bible for these thousands of years? Was it worth it? And I doubt they'll think that it was. But in reality, this conflict must have been very significant for word of it to have reached Paul and for him to feel the need to address it in an open letter to the church. But from this incident, we can learn a couple of key insights. First, we, we do see here that mature, committed gospel workers can still have significant conflict. Notice how these women are described. Paul said, help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. These were remarkable women who had been a part of Paul's ministry team, who had worked hand in hand with him, who had, and I like this language, contended for the gospel, meaning that they were uh, strong workers who gave themselves wholeheartedly, who worked tirelessly, and yet these women had a conflict with each other. So this tells us that no matter how mature or committed you may be as a Christian leader, the possibility still exists that conflict can erupt between you and your ministry partners. And it also teaches us, this example, that a shared relationship with Jesus Christ does not negate the possibility of this kind of interpersonal conflict even impacting the church. He described their situation and told his ministry partner as he's writing this letter to the, to the Philippians to work with these women that they might be led to agree in the Lord, to agree in the Lord, meaning to stop their conflict in the Lord and to find unity in him and to stop the impact that was having in the congregation and to prioritize solving this conflict because of their relationship with the Lord and out of uh, deference to and priority of that prioritization of that relationship. So we see this one example of conflict between church members and in fact between very active, committed, mature church members who were involved in this difficulty. Another example in the Bible is some conflict between church leaders. In Galatians chapter 2, uh, Paul's writing again and he describes a conflict he had with Peter. It says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, meaning Peter, of course, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
for he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, a gospel, I told Cephas, or Peter, in front of everyone, If you are a Jew, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? This is a breathtaking passage of Scripture. In these verses, Paul describes a conflict he had, an open conflict, an in-front-of-the-church conflict that he later wrote about and has been recorded in Scripture with none other than Peter. These are the two heavyweight champions, if you will, of the New Testament world. And I can only imagine what this conflict must have been, li- must have been like, a true heavyweight battle, if you will, between two spiritual giants. Remember, these were the most committed, capable, spiritually powerful Christian leaders in the New Testament world. These guys were in every way at the top of the leadership pyramid. They were uh, the most influential uh, people. They were the ones that everyone looked to for guidance. And yet, this conflict between these leaders was both public and intense. Did you catch the language of what I read when Paul wrote, I opposed him to his face, and I did it in front of everyone. This was not some conflict that was settled in a back room somewhere or just took place in an office-type setting. This was a conflict that took place in front of people. Paul and Peter debating one another, arguing with one another, confronting one another. And it must have been quite a conflict or quite a moment in the history of the church. But for our purposes, it illustrates that sometimes there's going to be conflict even between church leaders. People that lead church ministries, especially that lead in larger ministries and stronger, uh, more progressive, more aggressive ministries, are often very strong-willed people. And when they have to learn to work together, there's going to be some conflict along the way. Now, this doesn't mean that that, uh, the, the reality of this conflict doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. I'm just talking about what's reality today. And then what has to be done is, of course, conflict resolved in a healthy way if they're going to go forward. So there's conflict between church members, like described in Philippians. There's conflict between church leaders that's described in Galatians. And then there's another interesting conflict that that, that parallels a lot of what happens today, and that is there's conflict in the New Testament over a personnel decision. In the early part of Acts, uh, Paul and Barnabas went on mission trip, and they took along a young man named John Mark. Of course, John Mark deserted them on the first missionary journey, and when it came time to leave on the next one, uh, at the end of Acts chapter 15, this story is told. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now this is an amazing story of two spiritual leaders who had been through so much together, Paul and Barnabas, 
who chose sides over who's going to be the youth minister, or you might say, who's going to be the pastoral intern. Now, these leaders, the leaders had a public debate about this matter. It said that Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, but Paul didn't. And they had this discussion openly in the context of the church of Antioch. This confrontation between these men was bitter and divisive. Notice what the text says. There was such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. The issue involved other leaders having to take sides. One of the sub, uh, little sub-points of this text is it says, but Paul chose Silas. I wonder how that happened. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are having this incredible conflict over John Mark, and Paul says something like, well, if that's the way you want it, then you just take John Mark and do your own thing because I'm not going with him anywhere else in the world. I'll take Silas. And I wonder if Silas said, wait a second, how did I get into this fight? I'm just a bystander here. But Paul picked him out and said, you're on the team. So the conflict involved other people who had to choose sides. And the church of Antioch even had to make a difficult decision about who to support. The text ends by saying, after they made the decision that Paul and Barnabas would, or Paul and Silas would pair up, that the church commended them and dispatched them on the missionary journey. Now, you can't interpret what the Bible does not say. But the Bible is very interest, very clear in its omission of any blessing, commendation, or any financial support that was offered to Barnabas and Mark. Now, we can't conclude that they didn't offer any of those things, but we can conclude that none of those things are mentioned in the text, and the glaring omission of any support offered to Paul and Barnabas or to Barnabas and Mark uh, says to me that the church at Antioch appraised the situation and decided that Paul and Silas were the mission team they were going to support and send off on this journey. Now, the good news about this story is, of course, relationships can be restored. While Barnabas disappears from the biblical record after this incident, Paul and John Mark eventually reestablished their relationship, and John Mark was a, was a, was eventually fully reestablished as a leader and, in fact, used in, significant, in a significant way. We know that Paul reestablished his relationship because in 2 Timothy 4.11 he wrote, Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. And so as Paul was coming to the end of life, he reached out and requested that John Mark come to him and serve with him. And then we know that John Mark was fully restored and used in significant ways because he wrote the Gospel of Mark. That's a pretty good indication of his restoration. But what I really want to see in this story is that there was conflict even in the New Testament over personnel decisions. As I said, over who's going to be youth pastor or who's going to be the pastoral intern. They had a division that was so significant that Paul and Barnabas, these two men who had warred together for the gospel, separated their relationship. Now think about that. Paul and Barnabas had started their ministry together in Antioch, had resisted the Judaizers and gone to Jerusalem to win the battle over the doctrine of salvation, salvation by grace through faith alone. They had stood together on the first missionary trip, and you can read that story throughout the book of Acts and see all the different things they accomplished together, the pain they lived through, the struggles they endured, the victories they saw. All of that, all of those years of partnership and ministry was ended over a personnel conflict about a junior staff member on their team. So church conflict over personnel decisions has been around since the Bible, or since the New Testament times, and is still with us today. Now, these are just three examples of the kind of conflict we find in the church in the New Testament. 
Conflict between church members, conflict between leaders, conflict over personnel decisions. So in contrast to the myths that we shared at the beginning, and in light of these examples that we see in the Bible, here are some truths to remember about church conflict. First, good churches with committed leaders will sometimes have conflict. It's not, uh, uh, it shouldn't be a surprise, it should be expected, and we have to learn how to manage it. Second, church leaders and churches sometimes have to make tough decisions which lead to conflict. Church leaders have to make decisions about doctrine, about personnel, about relational issues that are damaging their fellowship. Church leaders have to make hard decisions that sometimes actually introduce the conflict into the churches. Three, tough decisions sometimes lead to people leaving a church. Now, let me say very clearly that in the New Testament, when people left a church, they went to another one. When they left a mission team, they joined another one. So while it's possible for tough decisions that lead to conflict to prompt people to leave a church, they may leave a church for another church, but they may not leave the church, capital C, and the mission of God. So you may change churches, you may change ministry teams, you may work with a different partner going forward, but when you have conflict, you never have the option of dropping out of Christian service or of pursuing the mission of God. You have to find another group who share your passions, your vision, and need your gifts and plug yourself in there. And then, even when decisions lead to separation, our bond in Jesus Christ remains. Paul appealed to those women in Philippi to come together in Jesus Christ. And Peter and Paul uh, managed to solve their problems, they said, because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. And then uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, or Paul and John Mark, reclaimed their relationship because of their mutual service for the Lord and their mutual need to be in dependence on Him. And then finally, even when decisions are painful and conflict erupts, reconciliation and, re and, uh, and recovery are still possible. We see that advocated for in... Uh, uh, in Philippians, where Paul said to do all we can to bring these women together. We see it in Paul and Peter's lives, because even though they had open conflict near the end of Peter's life, he actually wrote and said, Paul is writing scripture, and some of it's hard to understand, but it's so helpful to the church, so we know that they had an appreciation for and a support for one another as years went by. And then, of course, uh, Paul reconciling with John Mark is a beautiful example of this. So, myths about church conflict. Some examples of church conflict in the Bible which help us to shatter the myths and establish some truths, and then some truths that motivate us and guide us as we get more realistic about this challenge of managing church conflict. Now in the next podcast, I'm going to talk about some practical things that leaders can do to manage conflict more effectively in their church leadership settings. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.